Welcome, I'm Prudence Robertson, and this is EWTN Pro-Life Weekly. It's a kind of miracle. When you sit there and see all those people in front of you, people that are so different in what they think. Supreme Court transition. Justice Stephen Breyer is retiring after serving nearly 28 years on the U.S. Supreme Court. Questions loom over his replacement and the future of Roe versus Wade. Helen Alvare, professor at the Antonin Scalia School of Law at George Mason University, joins us to discuss the future of the high court. More abortion funding. The United States Department of Health and Human Services launches a new task force aimed at expanding abortion access while also granting millions to the Title X program. Loretta Brown, reporter for the National Catholic Register, explains the new pro-abortion initiatives by HHS. I want to show you how easy it is and safe it is by taking it myself. Pro-abortion extremism. Pro-abortion advocate kills her unborn child during a live television interview. I speak out against this horrific act. I want to say, look, uh, of course people don't agree, but we have a country that is based on human rights, democracy, and so forth. But I'll tell you what Lincoln thought, what Washington thought, and what people today still think. It's an experiment. Liberal Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer is retiring after serving for nearly 28 years. This week, EWTN News Nightly White House correspondent Owen Jensen asked White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki if Biden's nominee will be pro-abortion. He also asked when the president believes human life begins. Psaki refused to answer both questions. Biden's nominee won't change the current 6-3 to three conservative majority, but Breyer's replacement will almost certainly be confirmed by a Senate narrowly controlled by Democrats. And joining us now is Helen Alvare, professor at the Antonin Scalia School of Law at George Mason University and Robert Levy Chair in Law and Liberty. Thanks for joining us, Helen. Thank you for having me. I first want to get your thoughts on Justice Breyer's retirement. What were some of his decisions concerning abortion? I know that Reuters referred to him as a fortifier of abortion rights. Yes, Justice Breyer has been particularly active in recent cases concerning uh, whether or not states could maybe try to make abortion clinics a little safer um, and require the doctors there to actually have admitting privileges at other places. Laws regarding um, off-brand use of RU486, Justice Breyer has been a complete supporter of legal abortion. Uh, absolutely no dissent from uh, abortion on demand. Um, and all I can say is that I'm, you know, I'm, I'm glad that at least his replacement can't be any more doctrinaire uh, in favor of legal abortion. Mm. We'll certainly be tracking uh, who will replace him. Now, shifting gears a bit, you led a stellar brief in the Dobbs late abortion case being considered by the court. In the brief summary, you state there simply is no causal link between the availability of abortion and the capacity of women to act in society. Could you explain how you came to this conclusion? Right. Well, thanks for bringing that up and your kind remark on the brief. Um, it appears to a lot of people that in the most recent important abortion decision, the Casey decision in 1992, 
the uh, majority opinion suggested, didn't make it the basis for the holding, but suggested that women are not free in society without legal abortion. If you think about this for even a minute, it, it's depressing and demeaning altogether. So even though that is not the precise issue at hand in the Dobbs case, the Mississippi 15-week abortion law before the court, myself, Erica Bakiaki, Teresa Collette, and Elizabeth Kirk, uh, four female law professors, thought we'd better address that question before the court. And we used a lot of really good empirical data to show that even while abortion, uh, abortion rates and ratios, the numbers of abortions per thousand women, the numbers per pregnancy, even though they've been drastically declining in the last 30 years, all kinds of female accomplishments have been going up, up, up. So even just to make the simple case, you know, not the philosophical case, not the theological case, but the empirical case, that you cannot draw a causal relationship between women pursuing abortion and succeeding on some, some of the traditional measures. Mm. So insightful. And the pro-abortion side cites data from the Turnaway study, a study focused on suggesting the opposite, that women need access to abortion to succeed. What did you have to say about the Turnaway study in your brief? Uh, boy, you, you strike a nerve when you <laughs> mention the Turnaway study. The Turnaway study claims to show that women who were turned away from having late abortions because a clinic stopped at 24 or 25-week abortions fared worse in life than women who had late abortions, but right under the number of weeks that the clinic permitted. Uh, I hope people will take a look at my brief, which is printed on the SCOTUS blog, um, Dobbs page. But it, it that set of studies, funded by abortion advocates, published in pro-abortion journals, was nothing like what it claimed to be. It didn't really measure women who hadn't had abortions versus women who had because it messed up the categories. Many of the women who were turned away went and had abortions elsewhere. Many of the women who got abortions ended up having replacement children. It wouldn't share its statistics so other people could run the numbers and see if it actually could be replicated. They failed to account for the radical differences between the lives of women who make it to an abortion clinic on time, sort of the chaotic lives, very chaotic, that characterize women who try to come to a clinic at 28, 29, 30 weeks. So I urge people to take a look at it. You're going to hear that the turnaway study is the be-all and end-all to say that women who get abortions do better. And I think we do a really good job completely dissecting that claim. Mm. And very quickly, the brief also points out that while those who are pro-abortion claim that Roe and Casey were liberating for women, the data actually proves the opposite, that there's a correlation between abortion and women's declining levels of happiness and achievement. Could you briefly elaborate on that? Yeah, I'll try to be real quick. We show, first of all, that they completely ignore that even some very strongly pro-legal abortion scientists conclude that, on average, abortion harms women. We also point out that when abortion sort of sucked all of the oxygen out of the case for women and women's empowerment in the country, 
it left politicians free not to assist women and children and families in ways that women have been crying out for for decades. Mm. They gave us more abortion, like this new HHS task force, but really nothing else. Mm. Well, I very much enjoyed reading your brief, and it taught me a lot. I hope everybody at home will read it as well. Helen Alvarez of George Mason University, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. We continue this discussion with Stephen Billy, executive director at the Charlotte Lozier Institute. Stephen, thanks so much for joining us. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Of course. I wanted to get your thoughts first on Justice Breyer's retirement and how that's going to impact the court this year and beyond. So I think in the short, short term, there's probably not going to be much that changes, especially in regards to the Mississippi late-term abortion case. Uh, he's not retiring until the end of the term. But I think it is going to bring up the issue of abortion more broadly. And as we go into the midterm elections and as we look to see, is President Biden going to nominate somebody to the court who is going to put ideology ahead of what the Constitution says? Or is he going to put up a nominee that's willing to follow the science and accept the fact that fetal pain does exist or accept the medical advances that have been made since 1973? So I think that's really going to be where the impact comes longer term for the midterm elections and then also for who he puts on the court mm. in the next term. Interesting. We'll be keeping on our eye on that for sure. We heard a lot from Professor Alvarez about how there's really no causal link between access to abortion and women's success and happiness. Can you speak to the science scientific aspect of that question. What does abortion affect when it comes to women, their well-being and their ability to really interact in society? Yeah, well, the work that Professor Alvarez has been doing has been a great complement to Charlotte Lozier Institute's studies. We've been looking at 8 million um, pregnancies and 5 million women in Medicaid data. And what that data has shown us is that only about um, 1% of women have actually used abortion to separate their children or have a um, child spacing to determine when they're having children. Mm -hmm. And what we've also seen is that if you have an initial abortion, you're more likely to get pregnant and then have a subsequent abortion. Mm -hmm. So it's not advancing women further. The data is actually showing that women aren't using abortion to determine when they're having children and that it's actually putting them in a cycle of more and more abortions. Mm, how unfortunate. And you alluded to this just a bit ago, but could you tell us how advances in science and technology have changed? since Roe versus Wade uh, went into effect? Absolutely. There's been incredible scientific and, and medical advancements in 1973. I think the easiest way to see it, since we're kind of a visual learning people, is to look at the, uh, the image of an ultrasound from 1973, when it was a black background with some white specks on it. Mm. Today, you can see everything about the child in the womb. Um, you can see them sucking their thumb. You can see them responding to pain if they're getting anesthesia during fetal surgery. And what we know today about the unborn child is just incredibly advanced compared to what it was in 1973. Mm, so important. And finally, I just wanted to get your reaction to a statement on the Dobbs case that I found on a pro-abortion website. It says, it's not a coincidence that Mississippi is the poorest and blackest state in the union. Abortion bans are intended to keep poor people in poverty and keep white people in charge of everything. Your thoughts? on this? I think it's such an incredibly sad outlook on life mm. and, and misses the entire dignity of the human life. Um, you know, when you look at the compassion of the people in Mississippi, they've elected legislators and governors and state leaders that want to serve women, that want to make sure that women have the support they need so that they can carry out their pregnancies. Mm. And I think that quote also shows that the, the legacy of Margaret Sanger is still alive and well in the abortion industry. You know, the inverse of that statement is that they want the ability to end more black babies' lives, mm -hmm. and they want to end the lives of people, of, of unborn children, simply because they would be born into poverty. Right. And that's the human weed in the, in the eyes of Margaret Sanger, and it's a legacy that they just simply can't escape. Mm. Stephen Billy, so insightful, of the Charlotte Leisure Institute. Thank you so much for joining Absolutely. us today. Good to be here.
On the eve of the 49th annual March for Life, Joe Biden's Department of Health and Human Services launched an extreme pro-abortion task force, the so-called Task Force on Reproductive Health Care Access. Not only did they announce this initiative, but they also funneled an additional $6.6 million to the Title X Family Planning Program. Under the current administration, important rules have been removed that used to limit abortions from being covered through Title X. The new task force, aimed at expanding abortion access in all 50 states, outlines its intention to remove policies that stand in the way of the abortion industry. Meanwhile, nearly $2 million in Title X grant money is going to Planned Parenthood, the nation's largest abortion business. HHS has confirmed that this initiative is in response to Texas's heartbeat law. Seven states, including Texas, will now receive federal funding to cover abortion on demand, whether they want it or not. HHS Secretary Javier Becerra says he is committed to strengthening and protecting access to abortion. Joining us now is Loretta Brown, reporter for our sister publication, the Nath National Catholic Register. Thanks for joining us, Loretta. Let's dive right in. HHS has taken several actions under the Biden administration to promote abortion on, on demand. Given that, is this new task force really surprising to you, especially given that it was introduced on the eve of the anniversary of Roe versus Wade? Sadly, Prudence, this task force really didn't surprise me. I've, I've seen, you know, the Biden-Harris administration growing more and more pro-abortion over the past year. Right. And really what I think caused that is the possibility that the Supreme Court could overturn Roe versus Wade with this Dobbs case. And so they've been facing pressure from the abortion industry to really come out with an intense pro-abortion stance. And one example of that is their backing of the Women's Health Protection Act, which is a very extreme piece of legislation that would essentially bar the states from limiting abortion, um, you know, stop, stop pro-life laws in the states. And so while that doesn't look like it would pass Congress, their backing of that, I think, just shows they've, they've really um, embraced this pro-abortion stance, and now with this task force especially. Mm. And HHS has also awarded $6.6 .6 million to the Title X program, and this money will now go towards pro-abortion businesses. Can you explain this program? Is it ethical, Loretta? So the Title X family planning program is supposed to go to comprehensive uh, family planning methods and testing and counseling. And there are life-affirming resources and centers. And the Biden administration here has decided to give millions to Planned Parenthood. Um, and Planned Parenthood, their main business is abortion. You know, the, the president of Planned Parenthood talks about that. If you look at their annual reports, it's the main part of what they do. It is who they are. Mm -hmm. And so I think it is very concerning um, to pro-life taxpayers to see so much money going to such a pro-abortion organization, an abortion provider. And, you know, money, when it's given to an organization, to one part of it, it really frees up funds in other parts of the organization. So it really is... is concerning to see this abortion organization receiving funding from, from the government like mm, this. Yes. And can you explain the differences between what the Title X program looked like under the Trump administration and now under the Biden administration? I'm pretty sure that during the Trump administration, abortions were not allowed to be covered in Title X. That's right, Prudence. So under the Trump administration, there was the Protect Life rule, which very clearly said, 
you know, um, abortion providers, so um, organizations that refer for abortions mm -hmm. or that are physically located in the same place where abortions are provided cannot get this Title X money. And what that did was show just a clear, distinct line of separation between Title X family planning funds, which are not meant to go to abortion, not meant to go directly there, and abortion organizations, mm. right, so that there's no ambiguity there. And now the Biden administration has just removed that rule, and there's just such a lack of clarity, and there's cause for concern. Mm, indeed. And just looking ahead, what are you hearing we should be keeping our eye on, aside from this, when it comes to the Biden-Harris administration? So one of the things I'm monitoring especially are executive orders and guidance from the administration on the abortion issue, because right now, as I mentioned, the Women's Health Protection Act, so in Congress, they're not seeing legislation like that going through, and they're also concerned about the Supreme Court overturning Roe, so they don't have the avenue of, you know, pushing some extreme abortion legislation through Congress, so I think they're going to increasingly try to act, um, you know, through executive order, through guidances issued. Uh, recently, the Biden administration, FDA, removed the in-person dispensing requirement for the abortion pill, Mifepristone, which can be very risky for women. Right. Um, so many pro-life advocates spoke out about that, and I think pro-life advocates just need to watch these actions and continue to speak out, because unfortunately, I think we're going to see a lot more of them. Mm. Loretta, we're thankful for your solid reporting on this. Loretta Brown of the National Catholic Register, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Fruden. Coming up, a pro-abortion advocate kills her unborn child on live television. I speak out. Plus, a pro-life group in New York successfully stops the construction of a Planned Parenthood. We speak to the group's lawyer next. Welcome back to EWTN Pro-Life Weekly. I'm Prudence Robertson. A woman took Mifepristone, a pill that induces an abortion, during a live TV interview in an effort to prove they are, quote, safe and easy. That is this week's Speak Out segment. Abortion activist Jex Blackmore recently joined Fox 2 Detroit for a panel discussion where she was defending pro-abortion rhetoric. During her interview, Blackmore took a mifepristone pill. This is the first pill in the chemical abortion regimen, which blocks progesterone, the hormone that helps a baby growing in the womb, get the nutrients they need to live. Take a look. This here is mifepristone. This is the first of two pills you would take to end a pregnancy, and it would induce an abortion, this very pill, um, by blocking the hormone and allowing a pregnancy to grow. And I want to show you how easy it is and safe it is by taking it myself. You're taking it. Are you? Are you not? Are you? You're not pregnant, are you? Blackmore went on to say that, yes, she was pregnant and that this was her third abortion. In reality, these pills are far from a safe, easy, painless procedure. The regimen has been proven to be four times riskier than surgical abortion and can lead to severe heavy bleeding, incomplete abortions, and even death. Abortionists want to turn every post office and pharmacy into an abortion center for profit, regardless of the safety and well-being of women. It's notable that as Blackmore took the pill, her voice was wavering. She seemed very unsettled and distressed. 
This display was reminiscent of when women took abortion pills on the steps of the Supreme Court. Recent data shows that one out of every three women who take these pills will be rushed to the ER due to serious complications. The Charlotte Lozier Institute reports that the rate of chemical abortion-related ER visits has increased by 500 percent. Let's continue spreading the word about how dangerous this procedure truly is. A pro-life group in New York has successfully stopped the construction of a new Planned Parenthood. The organization, Brighton Residents Against Violence to Everyone, also known as BRAVE, filed a lawsuit in August of 2020 challenging the approval of the new Planned Parenthood building by the Brighton Planning Board. In the lawsuit, BRAVE argued that the planning board was negligent during the site plan approval process for the facility, as they failed to review issues that could, could be caused by placing an abortion clinic within a thriving community. Joining us now via Zoom is Linda Mandel-Clementi, president of Mandel-Clementi PC and lawyer for BRAVE. Linda, thanks for being here. Can you start by telling us about how you got involved with BRAVE and what moved you to serve as their legal counsel on this project? Sure. So basically, uh, I originally was contacted through uh, another attorney um, who uh, knew that BRAVE was looking for an attorney to represent them in the matter. Um, knew that it concerned a site plan approval process. That was something that I have uh, experience in, uh, both from serving as um, municipal counsel for towns within the state of New York, but also serving as an attorney litigating site plan approval issues, uh, land use issues in New York State. So uh, that attorney had reached out to me, um, told me a little bit about it. Once I learned that it was uh, for this particular project, um, I am someone who feels fairly strongly uh, in favor of the pro-life movement, so it was kind of an easy uh, decision for me to proceed forward. I mean, it wasn't easy in the sense that, you know, I had a pretty busy, pretty busy practice, but I did feel strongly that they should have representation. And also, uh, in New York State, if you want to challenge the site plan approval, you have a, like a 30-day window uh, from the time that the decision is filed in the town clerk's office. So I knew when I was reaching out, you know, when uh, they reached out to me on this, that we had a fairly tight window for me to make a decision. I did, and we proceeded. Mm. And in the lawsuit, you argued that the Brighton Planning Board didn't take a close enough look at the potential effects of bringing an abortion clinic into the neighborhood. What are some of those possible effects? So um, basically, they didn't take any look at it because they were told they could not by the town attorney, which was part of our lawsuit as well. But some of the deleterious effects that we um, that we discussed are, you know, obviously there are traffic impacts to that that are different from uh, your typical medical office building, and it's kind of an around-the-clock proceeding, and there's drop-in business as well. Then, in addition to that, we were concerned about the uh, lack of access around the facility. We were concerned about the fact that there was no real discussion about how waste management issues were going to be addressed. There was no discussion about the impacts to wastewater treatment facilities within uh, the town of Brighton and, and surrounding communities from the fact that so many of these um, facilities are now pushing the abortion pill. A lot of that waste gets uh, removed through the, um, you know, wastewater treatment facility, at, which is not designed to handle pathological waste. That was a concern, wasn't even addressed by the planning board. The other issue was fact, 
the the impacts to the community character within the vicinity of the facility. I mean, within the immediate vicinity there, there is a Catholic boys' school, there is a mosque, there is a children's playground, there are residences. And these types of facilities often invite sex traffickers who bring, you know, frankly, their victims there um, mm -hmm. to address the problems that arise from the tra sex trafficking. And a lot of those people will ha hang out around their loitering doing lewd comments at other um, sidewalk advocates, doing uh, you know lewd displays to those people. And all of that brings a negative impact to the immediate community character. And that's mm. something that we thought should have been addressed. Yes, well, it's clearly good that you were successful in pumping the brakes on this abortion clinic being built. Has anything been done to assure that Planned Parenthood cannot attempt to move into the Brighton neighborhood later down the road? No, and there's really no way to try to prevent that unless the town would like to undergo a secondary effects study. That's something that I know some of the advocates have been discussing at the town board level is that, you know, when they go to the meetings and they bring these up in the public comment periods, that they could, you know, commission a secondary effects and isolate particular neighborhoods which have sensitive locations like schools, like uh, playgrounds, you know, like churches. In the same way that a lot of times, you know, you address the secondary effects of, say, the, the porn industry, frankly, in, in New York State is like that. Adult entertainment cannot be banned in any area in which businesses are allowed. However, you can regulate the secondary effects of those and prevent them from going into certain locations. Mm. That's something that I think, you know, the town should really look at here. Mm. It's been so insightful to talk to you about this. Linda Mandel Clementi, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. And that does it for this edition of EWTN Pro-Life Weekly. I'm Prudence Robertson. Until next time, we'd love to hear from you. Find us at EWTN Pro-Life on all social media platforms. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, we're there. You can also send us a message by emailing prolifeweekly at EWTN.com. We love to hear from you. Remember, life is a gift. Your life is a gift. God bless.